let me introduce myself. I'm Joe Grizzly, bitch. What up, Mean Militia? I'm your host, Mean Joe Grizzly, and this is the Mean Joe Grizzly Podcast. Today's episode, I'm going to be giving my review of Stranger Things 4 Part 1 in a segment I like to call Grizzly Grade Reviews. So I'll start by giving a brief spoiler-free review, and then I'll get into spoilers and give the final verdict at the end of the episode. So first off, the new characters of Argyle and Eddie, they're both fantastic. Uh, They both give us these caricatures of classic 80s characters like the stoner and the metalhead. Uh, Argyle is very reminiscent of characters like Spicoli from Fast Ties at Ridgemont High, uh, Cheech and Chong, and Bill and Ted. Whereas Eddie is a lot like John from The Breakfast Club, and Eddie Weinberg from Trick or Treat, and Matthew from Black Roses. Uh, those last two I threw in there because... I'm a weirdo, and I like very obscure 80s horror movies. Uh, Those two being very heavy metal-centric horror movies. Check them out. They're both awesome. (laughs) But they're both essentially combinations of these characters, but are unique enough to not be like carbon copies. So Argyle brings a lot of comedic relief in times when the situation is so dire and bleak that a breather is absolutely welcomed. And it feels really organic instead of forced upon us like so many shows and movies do today. Eddie gives us a character that we've been missing in this series. Billy was somewhat of that character when it comes to the music he listened to and the attitude. But Eddie, is he completely embodies metal culture, especially from the 80s. Because after all, us metalheads, we're just outcast nerds with impeccable taste in music. And speaking of music, the music, of course, is great. Uh, This season gives us tracks from a wide variety of 80s artists, groups, and bands like Journey, The Talking Heads, Dead or Alive, Extreme, The Cramps, and Kate Bush. Uh, I'll admit, it's not as good as the soundtracks from the previous three seasons, but 
there's still some good songs on here. Uh, the score is as solid as ever, and it gives us familiar tracks, but with slight little variations that they give these, these good little nuances. Then the way that they blend those previously recorded tracks from other seasons and make those little variations, it just flows very well. Uh, they they definitely spent the bank on the special effects. Uh the CGI is used in ways to enhance the practical effects, and it never feels overused or half-assed. And speaking of practical effects, the main villain, Vecna, his design was promised to be 90% practical by the Duffer Brothers in this interview that they gave before the season was released, and they definitely delivered on that. And that's something that is very important to us horror fans is the more practical effects you can use the more we're going to love it and speaking of vecna this guy is terrifying uh in, in an interview with the duffers that i mentioned previously uh they stated that the inspiration for vecna was freddy cougar pennywise the clown and pinhead from hellraiser and it absolutely shows this guy is super intense he's menacing he's brutal and he is relentless and he's utilized very effectively by the duffers without being over or underused it's perfectly balanced and honestly he's the villain this show has been missing and i'll elaborate more on that when i get to the spoiler review next but despite all that this first part isn't perfect, though. There's a lot going on plot-wise with four main plots transpiring at the same time. And although they do a good job balancing them decently, not all of these arcs are as equally as interesting. The California storyline in particular, for the most part, is the dullest and the least interesting of the bunch. Then there are subplots that are being explored that I believe are really forced and unnecessary. Uh, there are some characters that seem to be out of character. <laughs> and I'll elaborate more on that in the spoiler review. And there's even a little bit of character regression, in my opinion. And finally, time. It may all come together at the end, but as of right now, I do feel that sometimes the length of each episode is unnecessary. But oddly enough, just when it feels like it's about to drag or, or, or just come to a complete stop, something happens and plucks it from falling into boredom or a slump. But that's really all I can say and cover in the spoiler free review before I start getting into spoilers and give my verdict. So if you haven't watched the entire first part of season four, go finish it and then come back because now we're going to get into the spoiler review. So anything past this point is going to be spoilers. So you have been warned. All right. So everything from here on out is going to be spoilers. So I'm just going to assume that you already know that. So moving on, there's a lot to talk about. So if I started talking about all this stuff all at once in the way it kind of was presented at the show, it's going to be super confusing. So I'm just going to try to break down the parts individually as best as I can. 
So we'll start out with Hopper's story. So we found out we found out that at the end of season three, when Hopper was supposedly killed, when the machine that the Soviets created to unlock the Upside Down was destroyed, I believe it was called the Key. When the Key exploded, Hopper found a way out by jumping through the gate. Now, when he jumps through this gate, he ends up in Soviet Russia, where he is taken prisoner, he's tortured, and he's taken to this very isolated prison out in Siberia, and I cannot pronounce it probably, so I'm going to do my best, but I think it's called Kamchatka. He is taken to this prison called Kamchatka, where it's a labor prison. He's essentially out doing, seems like they're building a railroad, which is kind of odd, but nevertheless it's like a labor camp and he ends up i wouldn't say befriending this guard but he ends up kind of working with this guard to get a message to joyce and murray to send him forty thousand dollars and that in return will grant him an escape and safe passage to america and this package is sent out joyce and murray receive it and they proceed to take the money to the pickup guy or the transport guy to take them to Hopper where they can bring Hopper back. And everything seemingly goes according to plan. Hopper escapes in dramatic fashion, I might add, goes to the rendezvous point and is disappointed to be captured once again because it turns out the transport guy named Yuri betrayed Joyce and Murray and the guard that Hopper was working with. So now the guard and Hopper have been thrown back into the prison and now they're in a special wing of the prison which turns out to be this some some type of arena where a bunch of prisoners are going to be fighting a demogorgon that they captured from the upside down. So with Hopper and this 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 guard's fate seemingly sealed, you also have Murray and Joyce, who end up coming to after being drugged by Yuri, and they fight back, and that plane crashes. So they survive the plane crash, but they head towards the prison to save Hopper. They end up rendezvousing at the prison. Hopper and the guard end up fighting off the Demogorgon and reunite with Joyce and Murray towards the end of the season, seemingly taking over the prison and trying to find a way back home. Then we move on to the Hawkins group. Now, I'm going to say this. I'm not going to elaborate too much on the California storyline is what I'm calling it. Because the California storyline, quite honestly, after 11 exits, is not interesting at all. That is one of the weak parts of this season. There are some parts that are cool, some parts that are exciting, but for the most part... When it switches to the California portion of the show, I'm pretty disappointed and I'm like, cannot wait till this part gets done so I, we can get back to what's going on in Hawkins or Russia or what's going on with Eleven. So seemingly, before we get to the Hawkins group, I'm just going to briefly talk about what happens in California. So in California, we pick up with Eleven and Will six to nine months later after the events of the Battle of Starcourt Mall and Eleven is having a really hard time fitting in. Everyone picks on her. She has this bully named Angela that won't leave her alone. But her spirits are being lifted because Mike is coming out to visit her. So Mike seemingly goes out to visit Eleven. 
And Eleven is telling him all these lies that she has all these friends and that she does all this stuff and and that her life is so good and everything. But in all actuality, she's being bullied every single day by her peers at school, especially this Angela chick who she tells Mike is her friend. So long story short, Angela and a, just about every kid at this roller rink that her Mike go to, her Mike and Will go to, they essentially pull this really cruel prank and embarrass Elle in front of Mike. So Elle goes off in a little closet by herself because she's so mortified by what happened. And eventually her rage takes over and she goes out and she smacks Angela in the face with the roller skate, busting her head open, causing this huge scene, which eventually leads Eleven to be arrested and taken to juvenile hall. But before she could make it to Juvenile Hall, she is picked up by Dr. Owens, which, if you don't know, is the doctor that was helping them in seasons two and three. Uh, he tells Eleven that he needs their help, that there's this huge evil presence coming the Hawkins, and the only way to stop it is if they have her. And she tells him, I don't have my powers. He's like, no problem. I know a way to get your powers back. So they, her and Owens essentially head to a secret base in Nevada. Meanwhile, Jonathan, Mike, Will, and Argyle are doing their own little thing, pretty much being babysat back in California. Moving on to the Hawkins group. So Hawkins is where, is where all the action's going on at. That's the most interesting part of this entire season because there's a new big bad around and he is killing teens, which seems to be at random. And this new big bad is dubbed Vecna by Dustin, of course, because every villain Dustin pretty much names. And this one's different. So Vecna, like I said in my spoiler-free review, Vecna is the villain that this series has needed for a while. He is the first villain that is truly sentient and not just a monster that is viciously attacking them. This guy thinks he's, he is sinister, he is ruthless, he is brutal, and he has a motive. And you find out that motive later on in the season, which we will get to when I go more in depth about Vecna. But Vecna is killing teens. And he seems to have a demographic for, for his victims that he's picking. But he kills two teenagers... Really, he kills three teenagers, and then seemingly his next target is Max. Now, this gets around episode four, which is called Dear, called Dear Billy. And Dear Billy might be the best episode ever in Stranger Things history. That, that If you had to pick what is the best single episode of Stranger Things, I would pick Dear Billy today. That's after doing my entire rewatch of the, of the series before we got to the release of season four part one so in dear billy max is kind of making peace with the fact that she is going to die because when vecna chooses his victims he starts tormenting them slowly through like waking nightmares like a clock continuously appears kind of signifying that time's running out for them uh he he has them hallucinating all these horrific things that are happening around them really whatever is centered around whatever ails them because the one 
common thing with all of Vecna's villains is they have something going on, whether it's some kind of guilt, some kind of sadness, some kind of anger. They, they all have something that he can exploit. And for Max, he's exploiting her guilt for letting Billy die and her not stepping forward to even try to save Billy during the Battle of Starcourt. And Max has kind of made peace with her death. So she's right. She stayed up all night writing letters while everybody else slept. And she spends the next day going around and delivering these letters to people that she loves. She has one to everybody, and she tells them don't open them until she tells them to. So the last letter that she has, she has two letters left. She gets one to Lucas, and Lucas says he doesn't want it. He just wants her to tell tell him now and talk to him now. And she's like, no, just read the letter. And she's really very closed off. Like this whole season, Max has been closed off. And that's something each, each one of the characters, and especially in Hawkins, they're all going through something. And they all have these lessons to learn. Max's lesson being that she can't do things on her own, that she has to rely on her friends for support. And that leads her to leaving Lucas, Dustin, and Steve down at the bottom of the hill as she walks up to Billy's grave. Now, when she gets to Billy's grave, she reads out this very heartfelt letter that she wrote to Billy's pretty much stating that she wishes they could have really been more like brother and sister, but all these circumstances kept that from happening. And she was hoping one day that they could have got a second chance, but Billy's dead. So obviously that's not happening. So in after she's done getting all this guilt kind of off of her chest and confessing to Billy at his graveside, Vecna takes Max. Now up to this point, We've had no way of figuring out how to get away from Vecna once he takes a hold of somebody. Like, you can shake them, you can jar them, you can do whatever you want to, push them, whatever. They still don't break free from his hold. And this is dubbed Vecna's curse. So once the curse is taking you over, there's nothing that you can do. So Max is plunged into this dream world, which is straight out of a freaking horror movie, which is just this big darker version with like the horror movie fog and everything in this graveyard that she already was at. This leads her to a, a section of the graveyard that is like tinted in red. So she keeps following it and she ends up essentially coming into what seems to be Vecna's lair. And he has the bodies of his first two victims already on display in his lair. And Vecna comes forth he places Max upon her supposed rightful place in his lair. And this is the most intense moment probably of the entire series. Like I said, Dear Billy is probably the best episode ever of Stranger Things. And it begins this desperate attempt to save Max where Dustin and the others, Dustin Lucas and Steve, just they don't know how to save her. She's doing the, she's floating above them completely entranced, completely under Vecna's curse, and there's no way for them to save her until Robin and Nancy, who have been doing investigating on Vecna, trying to figure out a way to stop him, figures out that maybe music can tether people under his curse back to reality. So they take Max's Walkman 
put on her favorite song and blast it in her ears. And that turns out to be Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush. I believe that's the name of the song. And they're playing, they're blasting Kate Bush. And it's this scene where Vecna has Max strapped to this pillar, tied down with these tentacles. And he's tormenting her and telling her that she belongs here and that there's nothing she can do. And he, she says, you're not real. He's like, oh, but I am Max. And starts contorting her body and twisting her body up, essentially about to take her life. And this gives her, seeing a, seeing a gateway to the outside back to her friends gives her the push that she needs to break free from Vecna and run for her life back out, breaking away from his curse. That scene was so freaking intense. <laughs> Me and my wife was watching it and we legit had to stop and, and take a little break because that scene was so intense because we generally thought that Max was dead. Like they sold it so well and it, and it never felt cheap. Even when she survived, it never felt cheap. It felt so, it was so well done. That's the best episode in Stranger Things history, bar none. There's no debating it. So Max escaping from Vecna's curse kind of sets them on the path to trying to figure out how to defeat Vecna. And this leads them to the Creel house. Now, this whole time, there's this guy that's being mentioned throughout the season known as Victor Creel. And Victor Creel is kind of like this, this town boogeyman this urban legend in town where this man in the 50s supposedly flipped out and murdered his whole family and said that the devil made me do it or a demon in his house did it and he is essentially confined to a mental institution for the rest of his life outside or near hawkins so they end up going to his house which is like the haunted house in town that all the kids are scared to go in and it kind of leads them in into figuring out some clues about Vecna, but it really leads them to nowhere. By the end of this season, there is only two people who actually know who Vecna is. That is Nancy Wheeler and Eleven. And I'm going to do my best to try to explain who Vecna is from the perspective of both of them right now. So kind of bear with me because this is going to be a little difficult. So at the beginning of this season... There is a flashback to 1979 in the Hawkins lab where there is a massacre that took place. And Dr. Brenner, who is played by Matthew Modine, he is the witness of the aftermath of this massacre that supposedly was all done by Eleven. She supposedly lost control and killed everyone. When I say she killed everyone, everyone in there died but Brenner and her, seemingly. Doesn't really show anybody else. Just shows bodies and blood everywhere. So that's kind of like this ongoing like plot line that keeps getting brought up throughout this entire season. So when Owens takes Eleven to this base in Nevada, it is revealed that Brenner is alive and he did not die in season one. So Eleven's terrified and doesn't want to work with him, but eventually she accepts that the only way to get her powers back is to work with Papa. So Brenner puts her in this new kind of device, which is pretty much like the sensory deprivation tank that she was in in season one, 
but set up a little differently and supposedly will unlock memories and allow her to get her powers back because according to Brenner, her mind's not letting her do it She's because she is suppressing memories. And once she gains those memories back, she will get her powers back and possibly be even stronger than she was before. So this goes on this long journey of all these memories that Eleven experienced. And I'm going to spitball the age here, but it seems like she was in between the ages of five and nine. I want to go somewhere in between that, but she's a little kid. And she's seemingly... Just like in the present day of the show, she's seemingly an outcast and not fitting in anywhere. And everyone is just relentlessly bullying her in this facility. So eventually what ends up happening is, is this orderly kind of befriends Eleven and tries to encourage her to do better and encourage her to everything's going to be okay. And he tells her the story of patient one. And she says, there is no patient one. Papa said he doesn't exist. But this orderly keeps on insisting that patient one did exist. He's just locked up and no one knows where he is. But Papa. So eventually it is revealed throughout this season that this orderly is patient one. And he had a device placed in him to suppress his power. Because he is essentially the subject that the entire Hawkins lab project, this this branch of MK Ultra from the from the U.S. government, was based around trying to emulate or procreate or recreate the power that Subject One or Patient One had. And when he couldn't be controlled, Brenner put a device in him that suppressed his powers completely. And they gave a name to the device, but I don't know what it is at the moment off the top of my head. I kind of, I can't remember what they called it. But he coerces Eleven into removing this device from his body so that he can regain his powers, and she does. And when she does... He kills everyone that stands in his way, including all the other test subjects. And some of these test subjects were just as young as 11 and some maybe even younger. And he just brutally massacres all of these test subjects and guards and other orderlies. And eventually it comes down to 11 witnessing everything or witnessing the aftermath and confronting patient one. And then a conversation ensues where he kind of reveals himself to be Henry Creel, the son of Victor Creel. Now, while this reveal is going on, Vecna has ensnared Nancy Wheeler in his curse. And he's about to take Nancy. He kind of uses her whole guilt with uh, the death of Barb from season one and all that to really ensnare her and this is when she figures out or, or she sees what happened and how Vecna was created so Nancy Wheeler and Eleven are kind of witnessing this all at the same time but we find out that Victor Creel's son Henry was born with powers and slowly but surely it corrupted him and he started cultivating those powers and getting stronger and stronger. He started practicing on animals. And then he eventually was moved up to people, which his first victim was his own mother. 
And one night he initiated his plan because he felt like he was superior to humans and that all humans were just going through the motions in life and really served no greater purpose, that they were more pests than they were predator, if that makes any sense. And he seen himself as an apex predator, and it was his job to cleanse the planet of humanity. So what ends up happening is, is he's trying to get Eleven to join him. And Eleven refuses, so a fight breaks out. While this fight's breaking out, he's talking talking down to Eleven. He's trying to get inside of her head. And also, on the other side of the story, he's talking to Nancy and explaining to Nancy what happens. So... Henry Creel killed his mother and his sister that night and almost killed his father, but music on the radio tethered his father back and out of the trance, so his father didn't die. But Henry collapsed from using his too much of his power too soon. He wasn't he wasn't developed enough to use it that much, so it was too much of a strain on his body. So he fell into a coma. So when he fell into this coma, it was presumed by by Victor Creel that his son was dead. Turns out he was taken by Brenner and brought to the Hawkins lab where he was eventually experimented on. So everything comes full circle. And it goes back to the fight between Eleven and Patient One. Eleven is about to die. Patient Patient One is about to, is about to kill her. And it turns out that this whole time patient one told 11 that he got powerful by thinking about something that angered him or something that was sad in this moment where patient one is seemingly about to kill 11 and add her to the stack of bodies that's already in this lab she thinks about a moment of love which is the day that she was born somehow she remembered the day that she was born and she first seen Papa, which is Dr. Dr. Brenner, which kind of makes you think that Dr. Brenner might be her actual biological father, and she sees her mother. This moment gives her this unparalleled strength at the moment to dispatch patient one, pin him to the wall, and just like in the first season of Stranger Things, where she disintegrated the Demogorgon, she did the same thing to Patient One, completely disintegrating his body all Dark Phoenix style and pushing him into the Upside Down. And this was the moment that the Upside Down was opened for the first time that we know of. Sending him hurling through the Upside Down. Now, we don't know if Eleven created the Upside Down at that moment or if the Upside Down was already there and she just punched a hole in reality to gain access to Upside Down. That's kind of still up in the air. Either way, while he is hurtling through the Upside Down, he's getting struck by lightning on the way down because if you remember seeing clips of the Upside Down, there's always like this red lightning that's flashing everywhere. Well, he's getting tagged by this lightning the whole time his body is hurling through the air through the Upside Down. It's scarring up his body and mutilating his body, and this seemingly is the birth of of Vecna because it cuts back to Vecna in his lair and shows the 001 tattoo on his wrist confirming that he is patient zero.
and that's how the season ends or part one of the season ends it was freaking amazing uh this this gave this this huge mystery that came full circle for everybody it, it just there's so much there's there's so much that i could sit back and talk about on this but the fact that they got so ambitious with this and they stuck the landing is perfect. Now, we can watch the second part of this season when it comes out in July, and I could totally hate it and say that it's a pile of shit and they dropped the ball at the end. But at this rate, I don't see that happening. Now, I'm going to say this. I do think that there's going to be some people that's going to die in this season. I'm actually going to be disappointed if main characters don't die in this season because we've gotten so close. I'm telling y'all that I really thought they were going to kill Max in episode four. It was, it was so convincing, but they seem to be setting up Steve to die or Hopper to die. And I definitely think that Eddie Munson, even though we just got introduced to him, I think that he's going to die. So those are three possible deaths that I can see happening in the second part of this season. And really, it wouldn't feel cheap if that happened. I kind of feel like at some point, someone has to pay the price. Someone important has to pay the price. Or, there, or the season wouldn't have any weight. And so far, this season is super freaking heavy. As far as other stuff, I left out a lot of stuff when I was talking about this, but quite frankly, it's not really interesting. I didn't find Mike and Will and Argyle and Jonathan traveling to Susie's house, which is Dustin's girlfriend from science camp. I didn't find that interesting at all. It was a good and inventive way to find a way for for them to find the coordinates to the lab in Nevada, but I just don't care enough about it. It was the dullest part of everything. Now, it provided it provided a purpose, which was comic relief and to break up the bleak and, and dark moments of this season, because this season is super freaking dark. And I think that Argyle does provide that comic relief. I do think that's good. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but he's still a great character. Now, as far as like just like I was saying in the in the spoiler free review, there's some character regressions in this season that I don't really understand, or there's some directions that I don't know where they're going. I have no idea where they're going with some of them. The uh, the one that's a definite regression is uh, Robin. I don't know. I don't know what happened to this character. Now she's not a bad character in this season. I'm not saying that she sucks. I'm saying. Robin went from being this smart, witty, and quippy person to a complete airhead. I don't know. I don't know why they chose to do that with her. It's it's not horrible, but it's just a it's a jarring change. Like she doesn't she's she's still recognizable, but it was a very big change that I didn't. I don't understand why they went with that. Uh, Lucas, for a little while there, I was like, oh, he's doing a lot of stuff out of character, but then it becomes a whole bigger picture situation where he had to learn the lesson of being popular isn't what it's all always cracked up to be, and it's more, it's more important to covet the the feelings and the opinions and the relationship you have with true friends than it is than popularity. That all made sense when it came full circle, but for a little while there, it was kind of strange too. Will Byers. I don't know what they're doing with this character. 
he was the center point of the first two seasons and then out of nowhere in season three he gets shuffled off to the back burner and it's kind of remained there ever since and in this season it seems like they're trying to change his sexuality and kind of make him this I don't know, bi-curious character. I don't really know where they're going with it, but it kind of seems like they're trying to make him have a crush on Mike, and I don't know how I feel about that. It doesn't, very, it doesn't seem very organic of a change for me, but nevertheless, they shuffled him off to the, to the back burner a whole season ago, so it's kind of wild. Uh, as far as, like, uh, Jonathan Byers, he's just barely in this. He's just there. He doesn't really serve much of a purpose. He has his own storyline where he's trying to figure out what he's going to do with Nancy because he doesn't. He's going to break up with Nancy, or he's trying to figure out. He he's trying to break up with Nancy not because he doesn't love her, but because he doesn't want to leave his his family, and he didn't think it would be fair to tell her that he got into a different college so she wouldn't give up her dreams so you got that whole subplot which to me is not very interesting uh meanwhile on the opposite end they are kind of setting up nancy and steve to get back together and that's fine i think that they kind of go together better than her and jonathan do anyway but nevertheless i regress the uh the other thing I didn't really talk about when I was talking about it before, Robert England as Victor Creel is awesome. He is barely in this this season. He's only in it for maybe about five minutes tops, maybe ten minutes tops. But his performance as Victor Creel get narrating this event that happened is just phenomenal. It's it's kind of strange because you know, Robert England, for those of you that don't know, and if you don't know, shame on you, but Robert England played Freddy Krueger, and to have that flip where he is a victim of something that is haunting his dreams, that was a pretty good change and a pretty interesting take of a essentially a character that he's played. So I, I thought that was pretty cool how they, they let him be take the perspective of the victim, whereas in almost everything he's been in before he has been the villain so i did like that and again it's robert england i like everything that robert england does he's a fantastic he, he's a very underrated actor when it comes to horror he's very good and really that's all i got to say about this season guys uh, i could sit back and i could keep going but this video would be two hours long if i did uh i really i really enjoyed this and i cannot wait to see the second part of this uh, that's going to be I, I hope that it is as epic as they are setting it up to be because i like how we're finally getting answers about the stuff that's going on in the upside down and and the truth behind vecna and 11 getting her powers back i'm i'm excited about all that and it seems to be building up to a very formidable showdown between 11 and vecna which all honesty, it needs to be some Avengers level shit, if I'm being honest with you. If it's not going to be like that, then it needs to be, it needs to be the biggest battle of the entire series. Like it has to be this epic showdown between them where both of them are laying everything down for survival. And that is something that I want to see. 
so I've kind of went over what I liked and what I didn't like and some of the highlights of the show. So right now, let's just go on and get to the verdict. Stranger Things 4 Part 1 is the most ambitious season yet, mostly leaving behind the mix of sci-fi horror from the last few seasons and bringing the horror aspect to the forefront. Vecna is a truly terrifying villain that adds a lot of extra tension and truly makes you believe that these characters are in genuine danger. This is all made possible by the perfect combination of great acting and top-notch practical effects enhanced by CGI. With storylines converging at the end, setting up for a season finale of epic proportions, Stranger Things 4 Part 1 gets a 4 out of 5 and is grizzly grade guaranteed. And if you haven't watched it yet, what the hell are you waiting for? Go watch it. And with that, we are going to bring this episode to a close. Thank you all so much for your continued support. Without y'all, this show isn't possible. I want to give a few shout outs. The first shout I want to give is to Zombie Hyperdrive and their song Red Eyes. That is the song that I use for my intro and my outro music. Check out their work, guys. Those guys do great work. I also want to give a shout out to Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. All the sick synth wave music that you hear throughout my videos, that is done by Carl Casey. The guy's a genius. Go check his stuff out as well. I'm also finally, finally on TikTok. So follow me at TikTok at the Mean Joe Grizzly Podcast. I'm going to be posting some content there. So stay tuned for that. Going to be some like mini reviews, maybe some character explanations. So keep staying tuned for that. Uh, follow me on all social media pages on my Facebook page and my Facebook group, which is the Mean Militia. And I'm also on Twitter, and I'm also on Instagram. So follow me. All those are ways that you can support the show for free. So thank you all so much if you are currently a follower. And also don't forget to subscribe or download each episode. It really helps out the show when y'all do that. So next we're going to be doing an explanation of Miss Marvel aka Kamala Khan so stay tuned for that that episode's probably not going to be very long because she doesn't have a lot of extensive character history so that should be rolling out pretty soon because the TV show starts next week uh, again I want to thank you guys I love doing this show and it's because of y'all thank you all so much for your support but remember until then Never forget, I'm Joe Grizzly, bitch.